Chapter Twelve, Part Two of From Sail to Steam, by Alfred Thayer Mahan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: Experiences of Authorship, Part Two. The Chicago had left England and was lying at Antwerp when the time for conferring degrees arrived. My attendance in person was requisite, but only a week could be spared from the ship for the purpose. This made it impossible for me to be present in both cases at the high ceremonial, where the honours are bestowed upon the full group of recipients. Oxford had been the first to tender me her distinction, and I accordingly arranged my journey with a view to her celebration, two days before which I went down to Cambridge, and was there received and enrolled at a private audience before the accustomed officials and some few visitors from outside what the circumstances lacked in the pomp of numbers and observance and in the consequent stimulus to interest which a very novel experience arouses was compensated to me by the few hours of easy social intercourse with a few eminent persons whom i had the pleasure of then meeting very informally the great occasion at oxford presents a curious combination of impressiveness and horseplay such as is associated with the abbot of misrule in the stories of the middle ages it is this smack and suggestion of antiquity of unnumbered such occasions in the misty past when the student was half scholar and half ruffian which make the permitted license of today not only tolerable but in a sense even venerable the good humour and general acceptance on both sides by chaffers and chaffed testified recognized conditions and there is about a hoary institution a saving grace which cannot be transferred to parvenus practised in a modern cisatlantic seat of learning as i have seen it done without the historical background the same disregard of normal decorum becomes undraped rowdyism boxing without gloves the scene and its uh, concurrences at oxford have been witnessed by too many and too often described for me to attempt them i shall narrate only my particular experiences i had been desired to appear in full uniform epaulettes cocked hat sword and what is suggestively called brass-bound coat swallow-tailed with a high collar stiffened with lining and gold lace set off by trousers with a like broad stripe of lace not inaptly characterized by some humorist as railroad trousers the theory of these last i believe is that so much decoration on hat and collar if not balanced by an equivalent amount below is top-heavy in visual effect if not on personal stability whatever the reason it is all there and i had it all at oxford all on my head and back i mean except the epaulettes for to my concern i found that over all this paraphernalia i must also wear the red silk gown of a d c l it became evident immediately upon trial that the silk and the epaulettes were agreeing like the kilkenny cats so it was concluded that these naval ornaments should be dispensed with the more readily as they could not have been seen in the blend and for the occasion my legal laurels prevailed over my professional exterior in the matter of dress my life certainly culminated when i walked up or down high street in oxford with cocked hat 
red silk gown and sword, the railroad trousers modestly peeping beneath. It must be admitted that the townsmen either had more than French politeness, or else were used to incongruities. I did not see one crack a smile. Whether any turned to look or not, I did not turn to see. My hospitable escort and myself joined the other expectants before the Sheldonian theatre, where the ceremonies were held. The audience of both sexes, visitors, and students had already crammed the benches and galleries of the great circular interior when we marched to our seats, in single file, down a narrow aisle. The fun, doubtless, had been going on already some time, but for us it was non-existent till we entered, when the hose was turned full upon us and our several peculiarities. I am bound to say that to encourage us we got quite as many cheers as chaff, and the personalities which flew about like grape-shot were pretty much hit or miss. I noticed that uh, someone from aloft called out, "'Why don't you have your hair cut?' which I afterwards understood was a delicate allusion to my somewhat unparalleled baldness. But it happened that two behind me in the procession was a very distinguished Russian scientist, like myself, a DCL in Ovo, whose long locks fell over his collar, and I innocently supposed that so pertinent a remark was addressed to him on an occasion when impertinence was lord of the ascendant. Thus the shaft passed me harmless, or fell back blunted from my triple armor of dullness. Although in itself in most ways enjoyable, the cruise of the Chicago, while it lasted, necessarily suspended authorship. I heard intimations of the common opinion that the leisure of a naval officer's life would afford abundant opportunity. Even I myself for a moment imagined that time in some measure might be found for accumulating material, for which purpose I took along several books. But it was in vain. Neither a ship nor a book is patient of arrival, and I soon ceased the effort to serve both. Night work was tried, contrary to my habit, but after a few weeks I had to recognize that the evening's exertion had dulled my head for the next morning's duties. My orders not only interrupted writing, but changed its direction for a long while. I had foreseen that the War of 1812 as a whole must be flat in interest as well as laborious in execution, and upon the provocation of other duty I readily turned from it in distaste. Nine years elapsed before I took it up, and then rather under the compulsion of completing my sea-power series, as first designed, than from any inclination to the theme. It occupied three years, usefully, I hope, and was published in 1905. Regarded as history, it is by far the most thorough work I have done. I went largely to original documents in Washington, Ottawa, and London, and I believe I have contributed to the particular period something new in both material and interpretation. But whatever value the book may possess to one already drawn to the subject, it is impossible to infuse charm where from the facts of the case it does not exist. As a Chinese portrait painter is said to have remonstrated with a discontented patron, how can pretty face make when pretty face no have got? Thus my orders to the Chicago led to dropping 1812, and to this my life of Nelson was directly due. 
the project had already occurred to me for the conspicuous elements of human as well as professional interest could not well escape one who had just been following him close in his military career sea power in the french revolution having been published less than six months before the framework of external events into which his actions must be fitted was fresh in my recollection as was also the analysis of his campaigns and battles available at once for fuller treatment more directly biographical after consultation with my publishers i decided to undertake the work and with reference to it chiefly i provided myself reading matter i have already said that the experiment of writing on board did not succeed i composed part of the first chapter and then stopped but the purpose remained and was resumed very soon after leaving the chicago in may eighteen ninety five for the writing of biography i have formed a theory of my own a guiding principle closely akin to the part which sea power had played in my treatment of history this leading idea was not intended to exclude other points of view or manners of presentation but was to subordinate them somewhat peremptorily as defined to myself a plan was to realize personality by living with the man in as close familiarity as was consistent with the fact of his being dead this was to be done first for myself as the necessary prelude to transmission to my readers when there remains a large mass of correspondence as one as frank in utterance and copious in self-revelation as was nelson the opportunity to get on terms of such intimacy is unique one-sided though the communication is besides companions and subordinates have left abundant records of their association with him which constitute as it were the other side of conversation relieving the monologue of his own letters the first thing in order is to know the living man and it seemed to me that with such materials this could be accomplished most fully by steeping oneself in them creating an environment closely analogous to the intercourse of daily life i believed that passive surrender to these impressions rather than conscious laboured effort would gradually produce the perceptions of immediate contact to the utmost that the nature of the case admitted johnson doubtless was right in naming personal acquaintance as chief among the qualifications of a biographer failing that one must seek the best substitute by either method the conception of character and temperament is formed its reproduction to readers is a matter of power of expression and of capacity to introduce aptly here and there the minute touches by which an artist secures likeness and heightens effect whatever the worth of this theory it was due in large measure to revulsion from a form of biography to me always displeasing and essentially crude which gives a narrative of external life events disjointed continually by letters profuse recourse to letters simply turns over to the reader the task which the biographer has undertaken to do for him perhaps the biographer cannot do it then he had better not undertake the job a collection of letters is one thing a biography another and they do not mix well when a career abounds in incident letters are material for biography as original documents are material for history but as documents are not history so letters are not biography the historian and biographer by publishing virtually contract to present their readers with a digested reasoned whole 
best expression, full yet balanced, that they can give of the truth concerning a period or a man. It is a labor of time and patience, and should be also of love, one which the reader is to be spared on the principle that a thousand men should not have to do, each for himself, the work the one writer professes. It is no fair treatment to tumble at their feet a basketful of papers and virtually say, There, find out the man for yourself. The interest of lives, of course, varies, and with it the opportunity of the biographer. I do not mean in degree, which is trite to remark, but in kind, which is less recognized. There are men the value of whose memory to their race lies in their thought and words, whose career is uneventful. Yet even with them the impression of personality is not as vividly produced by masses of correspondence as it may be by the petty occurrences of daily life, which for them are the analogues of the stirring incidents that mark the course of the man of public action, statesman, or warrior. The reason is plain. The character of few rises to the height of their words, written or spoken. These show their wisdom or power, and are uplifting. But their shortcomings, too, have a virtue. We fight the better for appreciating that victors have known defeat. The supreme gift of biography to mankind is personality, not what the man thought or did, but what he was. Herein is inspiration and reproof, motive force, inspiring or deterrent. If nothing better, mere recognition, or exultation in an excellence to which we do not attain, as a saving grace of its own. For the purposes of his biographer, Dr. Johnson scarcely left London. Beyond a brief visit to Paris, only a tour through the Hebrides. This, an event so colossal in its elevation above the flat level of his outward existence, like the church towers in a Dutch landscape, that it is treated as a thing quite apart, as a volume to itself, severed from its before and after. Boswell gives letters, certainly, and many, yet in the matter of character portrayal, what are they alongside of the talk? And also more pertinent what to Boswell was even the talk, compared with the intercourse to which the talk was incidental. In this he immersed himself, and his strong receptive powers absorbing the impression which he has so skilfully reproduced. Such apprehension as Boswell thus gained for himself is no neutral acquirement. It is a working force, instinctively selective from that on which it feeds and intuitive in its power of arrangement. To copy his result is futile. Like Nelson, there is but one Boswell, but it may be permitted to believe that lesser men will profit to the extent of their capacities by adopting his method. This possibly he never formulated, in that again proving his genius, the unconscious faculty of a very self-conscious man. But I conceive the process to have been first know your subject yourself thoroughly by close contact and sympathy, and then so handle your material as to bring out to the reader the image revealed to you. This is, in a measure, a plea for picturesque treatment of biography and of history, not by gaudy colouring and violent contrasts striving after rhetorical effect, but in the observance of proportion, of grouping, of subordination to a central idea, not content with mere narration, however accurate its details. A narrative which fails in portrayal, in picturesque impression, is not accurate. 
and a biography which presents a man's thoughts and acts, yet does not over and above them fashion his personality to the reader, is a failure. How much conscious effort may be necessary to the due handling of materials I certainly cannot undertake to say. But persuaded I am that the utmost results possible to any particular man can be attained only by passive assimilation, and that so they will be attained to the measure of his individual capacity. By such digestion a theme apparently dry may be quickened to interest. Though not a lawyer, nor a student of constitutions, I found Stubbs's Constitutional History of England fascinating. I have not analyzed my pleasure, but I believe it to have been due to portrayal, to arrangement of data by a man exceptionally gifted for vivid presentation who had so lived with his subject that it had realized itself to him as a living whole, which he successfully conveyed to his readers. There is no disjointment. The result is a great historical picture, or a biography, of law as a benevolent developing personality, moving amid the struggles and miseries of the human throng, healing and redressing. To The Life of Nelson I applied the idea of this method, which I thought to be helped rather than hindered by my warm admiration for him, little short of affection. I had faith in the power of attachment to comprehend character and action, and because of mine I believed myself safer when necessary to censure. I grieved while I condemned. I was sure also that, however far below an absolute best I might fall, the best that I could do must thus come out. Amid approval sufficient to gratify me, I found most satisfaction in that of a friend who said he felt as if he had been living with my hero, and of another who told me that after his day's work, which I knew to be laborious, he had refreshed his evenings with Nelson. In the first edition I fell into two mistakes of some importance, as well as others in small details, the effect of which was to confirm me in my theory for while they were blemishes and needed correction, they did not and do not, to my mind, affect the portrait, the conveyance of true personality. Of these errors, the most serious, regarded as a fault, was an inadequate study of Nelson's course at Naples in 1799, so sharply challenged at that time and afterwards. I recognized the justice of a criticism which alleged that I had not sufficiently examined the other side of the case as presented by Italian authors. This I now did, rewriting my account for the second edition. I found no reason to change my estimate of Nelson's conduct, but rather to confirm the favorable aspects, but what was more instructive to me was that even so large an oversight did not, when remedied, affect the portrait. The personality remained as first conceived. Nelson had acted in character. The same was substantially true of a more pregnant incident, the discovery of a number of his letters to his wife, which had escaped the diligent search made by the editor of his correspondence, Sir Harris Nicholas. After lying concealed for the half-century between Nicholas and myself, they turned up shortly after my book was in print. Here was more self-revelation. How might it modify my picture? The event was ushered in with a great flourish of trumpets, the walls of Jericho were about to fall, and I own I felt anxious. Some of the letters were published. Permission to see the others was refused me. 
as these have not since been given to the world i fancy that they sustain the opinion expressed by me on those that were that beyond emphasizing somewhat his hardness to lady nelson during the period of his growing alienation they add little to the impression before formed a slight touch of the brush another line in the face that is all the question of nelson's action at naples was brought forward in a way which required from me some controversial writing to this i have no intention of alluding here beyond stating that up to the present my confidence has not been shaken in my defence of the main lines of his conduct clearing him of the deceit and double-dealing alleged against him i say this because there may be some who have thought me silenced by argument in that i have not seen fit to rise to such crude taunts as that after this captain mahan will not undertake etc what captain mahan will or will not do is of no particular importance but when the repute of such a one as nelson is at stake burdened by the weight of calumny laid upon him by southey's ill-instructed censures it is right to repeat that nothing i have seen since i last wrote about nineteen hundred has appeared to me to call for further answer the life of nelson and the war of eighteen twelve of which i have already spoken remain my last extensive works in the interval between them eighteen ninety seven to nineteen o two i was engaged mostly in occasional writing for magazines or otherwise from time to time these papers had been collected and published under titles which seemed appropriate concerning them for the most part there is one general statement to be made with few exceptions they have been written to order partly from indisposition to this particular activity partly from indolence ultimately from conviction that editors best know or should know what the public want i have left them to come to me when expedient i have taken a subject somewhat apart from that suggested but usually akin speaking again generally the field of thought into which i have been thus drawn has been that of the external policy of nations and of their mutual international relations not in respect to international law on which i have no claim to teach but to the examination of extant conditions and the appreciation of their probable and proper effect upon future events and present action in conception these studies are essentially military the conditions are to my apprehension forces contending perhaps even conflicting to be handled by those responsible as a government disposes its fleets and armies this is not advocacy of war but recognition that the providential movement of the world proceeds through the pressure of circumstances and that adverse circumstances can be controlled only by organization of means in which armed physical power is one dominant factor in direct result from the line of thought into which i was drawn by my conception of sea power and which has inspired my subsequent magazine writing i am frankly an imperialist in the sense that i believe that no nation certainly no great nation should henceforth maintain the policy of isolation which fitted our early history above all should not on that outlived plea refuse to intervene in events obviously thrust upon its conscience the world of national activities has become crowded like the world of professions opportunity consequently has diminished 
and possibilities must be cultivated and husbanded. This is the primary duty of a government to its own people and to their prosperity. But there are other duties which must be accepted, even though they entail national sacrifice, because laid at the nation's door, like Cuba, or forced upon its decision, like the Philippines, I see too clearly in myself the miserable disposition to shirk work and care and responsibility to condone the same in nations. I once heard a preacher thus parody effectively the words of the prophet, Here am I, send him. And I have heard attributed to the late Mr. John Hay, an equally telling allusion to certain of our moralists, who would discard the Philippines on the score of danger to the national principles. Said a pious girl, when I realized that personal ornaments were dragging my immortal soul to hell, I gave them to my sister. Still less, let us hope, will one of the wealthiest of nations, or almost alone in the possession of an abundant surplus income, desert a charge on the poor plea of economy, or so far distrust its fate as to turn its back upon a duty, because dangerous or troublesome. If the political independence of the Philippine Islands bid fair to result in the loss or lessening of the safeguards of personal freedom to the private Philippine Islander, the mission of the United States is at present clear, nor can it be abandoned without national discredit, national crime. Personal liberty is a greater need than political independence, the chief value of which is to ensure the freedom of the individual. Similarly, not only for the sake of its own citizens, but for the world at large, each country should diligently watch and weigh current external occurrences, not necessarily to meddle, still less to forsake its proper sphere, but because convinced that failure to act when occasion demands may be as injurious as mistaken action, and indicates a more dangerous condition, in that moral inadequacy means ultimately material decline. When the spirit leaves the body, the body decays. In these subjects, and my way of viewing them, I suppose that ten years ago, before our war with Spain, I was ahead of the times, at least in my own country, and to some extent helped to turn thought into present channels, much as to my exposition of sea-power has been credited a part of the impulse to naval development which characterizes today. Immediately after the Spanish War, I seem to some, if I may trust their words, to have done a bit of prophecy, while others laid to my door a chief share in the mistaken direction they considered the country to be taking. Of course I was pleased by this, I have never pretended to be above flattery judiciously administered, but while confident still in the main outlook of my writing, I know too well that when you come to details prediction is a matter of hit or miss, and that I have often missed as well as hit in particulars. It is all a matter of guess, said Nelson, when tied down to a specific decision, but the world attributes wisdom to him who guesses right. This is less true of the big questions and broad lines of contemporary history. Their insight can discern really something of tendencies, enough to guide judgment or suggest reflection. But I am now sixty-seven, 
and can recognize in myself a growing conservatism, which may probably limit me henceforth to bear keeping up with the procession of the future national march. Perhaps I may lag behind. With years, speculation as well as action becomes less venturesome, and I look increasingly to the changeless past as the quiet field for my future labors. The End of From Sail to Steam by Alfred Thayer Mahan